I want to start off this morning by asking you if you've heard of the O. unilateralis fungus. Uh, some of you may remember I've mentioned this before, but basically this fungus has spores that are ingested by ants. And what it does is it chemically alters uh, the brain of these ants to manipulate the hosts, uh, the, the legs and the jaws of, of an ant, controlling its movement. So it's kind of continues moving around in this kind of drunken jerky walk. And universally, in about 10 days, it, with every single ant that's infected by this fungus's spores, they'll climb up on the north side of a plant, uh, approximately about 25 centimeters above the ground. And uh, they'll, as they climb up there, it's always a specific location, a specific humidity, a specific temperature. And then they'll chomp down on, in a death grip, locking into place on this plant's leaf until it dies. Meanwhile, you can see in this picture that there's, there's this growing tendril that's coming out of its head, which releases a, a, just a flood of spores that rain down on the forest floor, infecting more ants. Now, what's more horrifying about uh, this scientific reality is that these, this fungus doesn't just take over the brain. It actually takes over the whole body. And so what's happening is uh, the fungus will proliferate and infiltrate uh, the surrounding muscle fibers of the ant, like, like puppeteer strings spread throughout the entire body. And so it converts a high percentage of the internal organs in the body of the ant into a fungus. And so the way that researchers have described this is that in essence, it's a fungus in ant clothing. And so what we have here is the real life equivalent of a zombie. And so what happens is, is that as it appears to continue moving and breathing, that's actually the fungus. The ant itself is already dead. And I wonder if you are aware that our faith can often be like that, that there's the appearance of movement, there's the appearance of being alive, but in reality, many people are spiritually dead. And so you can attend church weekly, you can serve regularly, you can give occasionally, but inside you dread coming and then you're distracted when you're here. That if we're honest with ourselves at times that we come to church and outside of church, uh, we don't talk to God, we don't hear from God, we don't experience God. And the truth is our faith can be quite boring, dead, and so let's find out why and see if there's a solution to that this morning. Turn in your Bible, if you would, to James chapter 3. We're in this series called Vibrant, as we talk about a faith that works even when life does not. That there's this tendency in us to be nearsighted as we experience struggles of life. And so we need a new lens to be able to see our circumstances and our life through heaven's eyes. That as you and I are tested by trials and troubles and temptations, that a vibrant faith perseveres by living out God's wisdom, which blooms into Christ-honoring, life-giving perspectives and practices. And so today what we're, we're looking at is basically the central tenet of this entire letter of James, how to experience a relationship with Jesus that is truly alive, that's truly vibrant, a faith that works even when life doesn't. And so let's read from James chapter 2, um, verses 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So let's stop right there. In verses 14, James fires off a rhetorical question for us to consider about ourselves. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what good is it if you claim to have faith in Christ but have no works in Christ? And so just like way back in chapter 1, verse 22, that we, are, we can be hearers but not doers of God's word. We're all talk but no walk. And he asks, is that real faith? Is that the kind of faith that leads to your salvation? And so as we kind of hear this fiery question from James, I, you know, you're thinking, well, I guess the answer is no. But Brother James, Pastor James, can you paint for us a picture of what you mean? What does that look like? And so in verses 15 and 16, he says, imagine that a brother or sister in Christ comes knocking on your door and it's cold outside. Maybe it's raining outside and the person has raggedy clothes. They have no coat and they have no groceries to feed themselves or their family. And the way that you respond is, oh, that's too bad. So sad. I'll pray for you. May you receive the peace of Christ. May your body be warm and may your tummy be filled without actually doing anything to help, then he repeats what he said in verse 14. What good is that kind of faith? The answer, of course, is none. In verse 17, he says that in the same way, inward faith, if it's not working outwards, is that still vibrant? Is that at least kind of alive? No. He says it's dead. There's no truth. There's no life in it. And so in verse 18, he posits a hypothetical question, say that someone contends to you, well, can't one person lean more towards faith and another person lean more towards work? And James refutes that by saying, well, let's put them side by side and compare them. You put your faith without works on the table, and I'll show you my faith by the evidence of my works and see if you can spot which one of these is the real thing. Now, before we jump deeper into this, you should be thinking, well, hold on a minute. I could have sworn that the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So isn't he saying that, well, I don't understand. Aren't you, isn't James kind of arguing against that, that that you have to have works in addition to your your, uh, faith in Christ? And so what we want to see here is that Paul and James, they actually, they're not, contradicting each other. They're, they're saying two different things. They mean two different things when they're addressing the issue of works. So Paul, he argues against the kind of works where you're trying to fulfill God's law by your own effort or your own ability or your own morality. That, that picture of, well, people who, through their works, if I just follow the rules enough, if I just try hard enough, if I can be good enough, then somehow I can earn my way up towards heaven, Right? And we know that the gospel is this, that God says you cannot earn your way up towards heaven through your works. So God had to reach down to us instead through Jesus Christ in order to save us. Now, 
when James talks about works, you remember back in chapter 1, verse 27, that he describes religion, the outward expression of our faith, as growing in both uh, ministry and in integrity. And so it's not a contradiction here. Paul is saying that works are never the cause of salvation. And James adds to that, but works are always the result of our salvation. You understand? Did you catch that? And Paul would actually agree with that. He talks about in Ephesians chapter four, uh, 2, verses 8 through 10, that we're saved by grace through faith alone, so not through works so that no one can boast. But then later on, a couple verses later in verse 10, but that God gives us work that he's prepared in advance for us to do as a result of our salvation. And so the big idea from the passage this morning is that there are no genuine roots of faith without the fruits of works. That yes, we're justified by faith alone, but true faith is never alone. It always produces fruit from it. And so Jesus puts it to us like this. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 through 21, he says that every healthy tree bears good fruit and every diseased tree bears bad fruit. And then not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, did you catch how Jesus defines the fruit of works? Doing the will of God. And so there's this tendency in us to define belief simply as accepting that something is real or that it's true. But in verse 19, it says that even demons believe in God. In fact, they're probably better biblical theologians than most people because they know exactly who Jesus is and what his word says. And yet, they respond in terror, not worship. And so biblical belief is more than just intellectual acceptance or a heartfelt acknowledgement that you're responding to. And so our starting point this morning is do you just know about Christ or is your life transformed by Christ? Are you doing more of the will of God in your attitude, in your decisions, in your actions? Well, okay, but then how do we bring that kind of faith to life? Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So in verse 20, James, our brother James, he brings some fire to the table, right? He, he talks to these Jewish believers like, are you so foolish that I need to show you how useless faith is without works? Okay, Pastor James, calm down for a minute. So what does fruitful faith look like? And so some of you may remember, there's a story in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, uh, with uh, this man named Abram, that after he wins this great battle, Abraham is left exhausted and depressed. And so God encourages him and says to him, I'm your shield and your reward is very great. But despondent, Abraham responds, well, 
What's the point of receiving a reward if I remain childless and all I have goes to my servant Eliezer after I die? And God's gentle comfort for him is uh, to say, this man will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside, it says in Genesis chapter 15, verse 4. And he says to Abraham, look towards the heavens and number the stars if you're able to. So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, that God made him right by faith. And so in James chapter 2, verse 21, Abraham is honored as the Old Testament father of the Jewish faith. And so James declares to these uh, Jewish Christians at that time that Abraham was justified and made right with God by his works when he offered up Isaac on the altar. Now, I want you to catch this because there's some historical significance to to what James is saying here. Because this is not the same passage between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. So, after patiently waiting for God and his promise in Genesis 15 through years of barrenness, about 25 years after God promises this to him. He's blessed with the birth of his son Isaac at 100 years old. And then after years of quietly raising this beloved son with love and with joy by the time that Isaac is 15, we see later in Genesis chapter 22, here's 40 years after Genesis 15, God tests his heart. Do you really trust me? Are you willing to give up the son of promise, even giving up your beloved son to me? And I wonder when the promises of God are hanging by a thread and he seems to even take that away from us. Do you still trust that I'm good? Do you still trust that I'm God? And I wonder how many of you have been there in that place or maybe are there this morning. And to his credit, Abraham obeys. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19 says that he trusted that God and his character and his power would still fulfill that promise, even if he had to raise Isaac back from the dead. And so back to James in verses 22 and 23, it says that Abraham's faith was expressed, was completed by this work, this offering, this trust of obedience to God. How so? Now I want you to catch this. Here's the point. James ties... Abraham believed God in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, verse 6, excuse me, with 40 years later acting on that belief in Genesis chapter 22 and tying it together that that act of obedience was counted to Abraham as righteousness. In other words, the story of Abraham's faith began with trusting God in Genesis 15, but it's fulfilled in obeying God in Genesis 22. And so that's why James declares in verse 24 here that a person is justified by works, not just by faith alone, that these two things are inseparable. That famous Christian pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer writes this, the Bible recognizes no faith that doesn't lead to obedience, nor any obedience that doesn't spring from faith, that the two are opposite sides of the same coin. And so here's the practical takeaway from this part of the passage this morning. Abraham acted on his belief, and not just when it was easy and convenient, but when there's a real cost to it. You see, he left 
his pagan land and his pagan family behind to believe God and to receive this promised son. He's willing to leave everything else so that he can receive this specific promise. But here's the final exam that God gave him. Do you really love and trust me? Do you love the blesser more than the blessing? Even if you have to give up what your heart treasures most. And he did. And the result was that the Lord provided a substitute sacrifice because the issue isn't giving God his son, but giving God his heart. And the result in verse 23 is that because of that, he was called a friend of God, that he was able to experience this deep, vibrant friendship with the living God in intimacy and in joy. Does that describe your spiritual life or your relationship with Jesus? So here's the point of this section. That a vibrant faith is worked outwards in costly and sacrificial obedience. And that's the kind of fruit that we're talking about. You see, you can say that you trust the chair to hold you, but it's not real faith till you put your weight on it. You can say that you trust a plane to fly, but that's not real faith until you sit down in it. And so you can say you trust God, but it's not real faith till you put your weight on God in obedience when there's a potential cost or sacrifice to it. And so I, a man spoke with me once about how God had blessed his restaurant business way beyond his imagining. And yet there was something gnawing at him. That it, as the owner of this restaurant, he had to work every other Sunday. And so he would miss church about 50% of the time. And he asked me, well, what should I do? I'm kind of like, I don't know. But here's what I do know. The Bible says two things. In Exodus chapter 20, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days you will work, and on the seventh it's for rest and for worship. Secondly, in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 25, we're commanded, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but instead encourage one another and spur one another on towards love and good deeds, and all the more as you see the day of Christ approaching. And so the body of Christ, we need each other to be spiritually healthy by gathering together weekly. So after this conversation, well, he said, you know, I'll, I'll go home and pray about it over the next week. Fast forward a week, receive a phone call. He says to me, you know what? I feel led by God to honor Jesus by closing my restaurant on Sundays. Well, how do you feel about that? Terrified because a lot of our business is done on weekends, and I worry about supporting my family and supporting the employees that depend on me. Now, here's the hard part. Here's the sacrificial part. His fears proved to be true. They experienced a 20% drop in their weekly revenue. And so it started to seem that the cost of obedience was too high, and he was considering closing his restaurant down. But he decided to hang in there to trust God. And so after about five months, we touched base again. And he was sharing with me two things. First, somehow there's always enough to pay the bills, pay the staff, and to take care of my family. That there's a God in heaven that as I obeyed him, he provides for me. Secondly, over these past five months, my relationship with God has started to change because of how things have been going. I pray daily and desperately and dependently. And as I did, I started to experience 
more peace, more joy, more thankfulness, and more conversations with God on a daily basis, more than I have ever had with God over these past 10 years. You might say that he started to experience God as a friend as well as as a father. And so I want to ask you this morning, in what area of your life is God calling you to put your weight on God in obedience, even though it might be costly? Maybe with your money or your marriage. Or what is that decision or that direction where God is calling you to obey him, but the price might be very high? Genuine faith requires everything, all of me, to be submitted to Christ because whether I gain it all or lose it all in this life, faith says that Christ is better. Okay, yes, but I'm no Abraham. I'm no giant of faith. And so James gives us a second example, but he's not just being repetitive. So I want you to think about what's the difference here in the second example. What is James trying to teach us? Verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So two observations about Rahab. First one is this. From a human perspective, she is the exact opposite of Abraham. Abraham was revered as Father Abraham because he is the first Jew. He's not just a Jew. He is the Jew. He's the first Jew. He is the father of their faith. Rahab, she's a pagan and a prostitute. And yet God draws her into his great story with all of her flaws and failures, just like us, and makes her strong and courageous in her faith. And that gives sinful, non-Jewish Gentiles like me hope. Secondly, her story intersects with God and his people when the Israelites cross into the promised land and the citizens of the city of Jericho, they thought they could defy God and defeat the Israelites, trusting themselves and their mighty wall. But Rahab, she runs a brothel and shows she's heard stories from traveling clients about the supernatural victories about this great God of the Hebrews. And so in Joshua chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, by faith, she declares to these Israelite messengers, these Israelite spies, the Lord your God is the God of heaven above and earth below. Please save us. And she believed that God could and would. And so he does. But here's the point here. Her faith didn't end with simply an intellectual acknowledgement about God or her own salvation. You see, she saw these Israelite messengers in need and how she didn't respond to these these spies that needed her help was, was, you know what? I am justified by faith alone. So I'm sorry, but I'm not going to, I don't feel a need to to prove my faith to you by, by working it out and saving you. And so uh, I'll tell you what, let me pray for you. Just go in peace. May your body be warm and your tummy filled. No, that's not how she responds. Now pay attention. Here's the focus. Here's the point in verse 25. She was justified. She was made right with God, not just by the roots of her faith, but how she bears the fruits of her work. And in obedience to God, she protects and hides these strangers, God's people from the city guards 
at great personal risk because such an act could cost her her very life as well as her family. Now here's the question. What's the difference between her example of faith and Abraham's? So here's the second observation. We often think of the fruits of our faith as what grows in us. That I'm doing God's will by sinning less or giving more or becoming a kinder, a better person and more like Jesus. Yes, these are all good things. But remember back in James chapter 1, verse 27, that the outward expression of our faith is both keeping ourselves unstained from the world in integrity and caring for others in ministry. And so what we see from Rahab's example in serving these Israelite spies at great personal risk, we see that vibrant faith not only works inwardly, but it also works outwardly in sacrificial service to bless others. That if the only beneficiary of my faith is myself, that my life gets cleaned up, my life gets transformed, but there's no sacrificial obedience to God in compassion, in helping, in ministering to others, then we may not really be doing God's will. What we have may not be genuine faith. A pastor, not myself, uh, pulled uh, his friends on Facebook and asked the question, well, what makes it hard for you to serve others? And some of the best, most honest responses are, are the following. Let me read some of them to you. Serving hard, serving is hard uh, when it doesn't fit my schedule or my plan. Uh, like when I want to go for a walk or when I want to take a long bath. <laughs> serving is hard when, it's, uh, when the needs seem endless. I don't want to risk uh, helping because I may get sucked in and not get to be the me that I think that I am or that I'd like to be. Serving is hard when I have limited energy left after a demanding work day and meeting the basic responsibilities with my young kids, how do you balance the need for rest and self-care with serving others? And here's my very favorite answer. What makes it hard to serve others? Others, <laughs> other people, because they're annoying and frustrating. And so the reality is that we have a lot of excuses and many of them are quite reasonable. Serving others is costly. It's sacrificial. But remember this passage. Rahab helped people because she trusted God by obeying God. It was about God. You see, if we focus on just serving people, then eventually they'll let us down. We get irritated and we get frustrated. Okay, we try to make it bigger than that. If you're serving a cause, then when things don't go your way or when the road is long and hard, you'll often get disillusioned and discouraged and burnt out. But if you are serving the living God, working out your faith to minister to others because you love and worship Jesus, then he's our unfailing reward and our strength and our purpose and our joy. And so in verse 26, James concludes that if your faith is not being worked out in the fruits of your life and in others, a faith without works is like a corpse without a spirit. It's dead. And so is your faith vibrant? Or is it dead this morning? Well, I don't feel so lively lately. Well then, consider this. Who is Jesus calling you to serve at great cost? Sacrificially for them. Obediently to God. Now there may be a real cost, but there's also a real payoff 
that you and I, if we are making it about God, then we get to trust God and depend on God. We get to experience and enjoy God in deeper ways as we obey him and blessing other people. Years ago, uh, people in our church used to gather every Sunday after church to play basketball. And uh, I was one of them. And I considered myself a pretty good ball player, even though others who were there at that time, he testified differently. But it doesn't matter because on the court, it didn't matter if I had a great game or a terrible game. What I enjoyed about it was that it was tremendously exhilarating. I felt alive. And I thoroughly enjoyed the company of brothers and sisters in Christ that we would play with. And so for years, you know, I would think of myself as a basketball player. Now, I have to confess There were weeks back then that uh, there were times when I felt quite reluctant. I love basketball. But you know what? I can just watch the game on TV, right? I can get the beauty and benefits of basketball without having to put in the effort of it. I can get a similar experience while saving myself the hassle of going and the pain of playing. Or I'd rationalize, well, you know what? I don't know if I want to exercise and play basketball this, this afternoon. I'd rather take a nap or I'd rather read a book or I'd rather do nothing. And the truth is, as I've gotten older and lazier, a little bit chubbier, and my, my body's gotten a little bit more rickety, I've given up playing altogether. But I love to watch it still. Now, if I'm being honest with myself, is it true if I, still call, my, if I call myself a basketball player? And I wonder which of those describes your faith. Would you rather watch than play? Do you just yell and cheer for Jesus as long as nothing is required of you and no sacrifice has to be made? Are you too busy and distracted doing your own thing and compartmentalizing Jesus? No wonder you find your faith so boring because you will never experience great things, the great things of God because you never take great risks for God. Or do you get into the game? That as you trust God by obeying God, that you come alive as you experience and enjoy him. You see, we'll only experience his power as we practice trusting him completely. And we only experience his joy as we learn to depend on him daily. Does your faith work? Is your faith working itself out in costly and sacrificial obedience? Is your faith working itself outwardly to bless and minister to others in sacrificial service? So my prayer for you is may your roots of your faith grow deep and may the fruits of your faith grow wide. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning that is deeply convicting to me personally. I think about how often My relationship with you can seem quite boring. doesn't feel very vibrant. And then I come to your word and I'm reminded once again, what a good God you are. We thank you that you remind us that our faith is not simply being a fan on the sidelines, simply cheering for Jesus, but never experiencing any sacrifice, never having to get into the game. That's not who you called us to be. No, there's something fundamental that that faith and works aren't exclusive categories, that works are a part of our faith, that there should be fruit that grows out of healthy roots. And so we pray first and foremost 
that we might know you, that we might know Jesus, that we don't want to simply do works out of a dead religion, doing things out of our moral obligation and sense of religious duty. And yet, we want to experience something real in our faith, something that comes alive in Christ, that burns brightly and fiercely for Jesus, that we would experience your intimacy and your power in our lives, God. And so we pray this morning, God, you're the one that has to do it. Would you bear healthy fruit if we truly have healthy roots, God? Would you help us to come before you and be willing to listen to you and not just hear your word, but to come in obedience by the power of your spirit, not our own effort, not our own ability, not our own will, but help us to obey you, even at great cost. And help us as we grow, as we move our lives and our families and our, and our struggles into obedience to you. May it not just be about ourselves, but like Rahab, would you help us to bear fruit in other people's lives, in costly service and ministry to others, And would you make it specific for us today? Who is that person that you're calling us to serve this this day, Lord? It may be someone in our own homes as we struggle with conflicts in our families, with our spouses, with our kids. It may be someone that we find frustrating at work or someone that we bump into the street who, who offends us. May we experience the power of Christ in a real way. May we know and see the evidence that our faith is real as you empower us to obedience, that we might see the fruit of your roots in us, Lord. Help us, God. Help us, God, to make a practical commitment today. In Jesus' name, amen.